You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. 20 years ago, we thought we were training too many physicians. One generation later, it looks like there's a looming shortage. What is going on? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives better treatments to patients through repurposing generic drugs for new uses. And my guest on ReachMD is Douglas Lau. Doug is an attorney who has managed healthcare resources for the last 25 years and was recently CEO for the Bonfils Blood Bank Foundation in Denver. Doug is very involved in discussions surrounding the development of new medical schools. Doug and I are discussing training more medical students to overcome the possibility of a future shortage of physicians in the United States. Doug, welcome to ReachMD. Thanks, Bruce. Great pleasure to be here. With new medical schools coming online, there's some talk about different models. Can you describe for us what the Harvard model is and why that's the preferred structure for designing new medical schools? Well, Bruce, a major difference between the Harvard model and the more conventional schools is essentially the clinical faculty structure and the number of actively involved clinical faculty. For example, Harvard has used a system whereby many of the clinics and hospitals around Cambridge are associated with the Harvard Medical School, and therefore they can train their students in a whole different variety of settings. Now, Harvard, like the other schools, typically has the first two years of mostly classroom activity, and in the second two years, they combine that academic teaching with very intensive clinical training. But in certain areas, that clinical training is limited by the number of hospitals and clinics affiliated with the medical school. The Harvard model kind of takes most of the docs in the particular region, associates them with the school, gives them an academic home, if you will, and a faculty designation, most of whom aren't paid, brings a greater network of affiliation with an institution that is training so that the docs themselves are mentoring and training other students. Other systems don't have that extensive of a training system among practicing physicians. Is that something that happens because Cambridge and Boston is just that kind of hotbed for physicians, or is that something that could happen in almost any location? Well, other schools that are getting started are certainly looking at that model as something that ought to be emulated for the basic reason that when you talk to existing practicing physicians that are not affiliated with a medical school as a teaching appointment, they talk about the fact that they feel like they have no academic home. They feel like their continuing education for themselves is inhibited by the fact that they are not doing any teaching or, or mentoring. I mean, you see things differently when you're teaching a younger student about taking care of a patient actually in a, a patient care setting. So we hear a great deal of anecdotal evidence from community doctors, we'll call them, who are not affiliated with a a university or a medical school, that there's a problem there and that they wish they had more access to teaching capabilities. And so I think a lot of the new medical schools are looking at that and trying to incorporate more of the existing medical physician pool in their teaching faculty. So what size community could support a medical school then if you're talking about using a lot of community-based physicians as faculty? Well, I don't know if it's the size of the community that matters so much as the the number of patients that are available to use to teach. If you take the case of Scranton, for example, Scranton, Pennsylvania has four hospitals, uh, primary hospitals, 
and a few other clinics. Um, those hospitals were basically non-teaching hospitals because there was no medical school in the region. Some of the other schools in the state were rotating some residencies uh, through those hospitals. And in fact, the residency programs existed before this potential medical school. So there were a number of patients that were in these hospitals that were not being utilized as teaching models. So I don't know if it's the, the size of the community. I do think that residency programs are a key part of any medical school and creating new residency programs are what is going to be the key factor in a particular community and being able to, if you will, uh, prepare a medical school for success in terms of graduate medical education. What other models exist besides the Harvard model? Well, nothing that I am aware of that's given a particular name. The Harvard model is just sort of known as one that incorporates such a huge amount of the uh, healthcare workforce in a particular community. Other models, I think, are more likely to associate themselves with whether a medical school is affiliated with a university or whether it is independent of a university. Are existing medical schools trying to change to adopt the Harvard model? Well, it's interesting you ask that question, Bruce, because there's a real difficulty in existing medical schools changing much of anything, including their curriculum and including the way they operate within a community just because they tend to be older, entrenched institutions that have a foothold in certain areas and maybe not in others. And as you see an increase in the number of hospitals managed by for-profit healthcare chains, now you're talking about a situation where individual hospitals coming online and being part of a teaching system for a hub medical school in a particular community becomes harder and harder. So we're talking about changes in traditional curricula, and is that something that's going to impact the length of time that medical students have to train? Not likely. I think that nobody, I I don't hear anybody talking about anything beyond four years, but as you know, in order to practice in the United States, you have to go through your four years of medical school and at least one year of a residency program, a graduate medical education program to get your license. And of course, most physicians go beyond one year of residency. So I don't think we're looking at that. What we are looking at is the possibility of new kinds of teaching methods and different content in curriculum. You are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Operating Officer of Partnership for Cures, and I'm speaking with Doug Laub, JD, discussing the potential shortage of physicians in the U.S. and the prospects for new medical schools. Doug, what's the cost of getting a new medical school off the ground? Well, Bruce, you hear as much as five or six hundred million dollars, and it goes down to 150 or 200 million. So there's there's quite a wide range there. The big question is how much are you going to, first of all, are you going to build a new facility or can you get the school up and running in an existing facility that would even be an office building in an area where there's some availability of relatively cheap space where a lot of the clinical applications would be done either in the hospitals or in separate labs in that new facility. But once you start building a new building, it changes the dynamic of how much a medical school would cost. Of course, it would depend on the size of faculty the number of students that this particular school is looking to attract. There's a lot of variables, but it's, it's a number that I would say is anywhere from 200 to $500 million. And in your estimation, how long does it take from 
the beginning thought process of putting a new medical school online to the time when the first students matriculate into the freshman class? Well, we've seen around the country that projects that have been spoken about and kind of dangled around for four or five years uh, finally come into some sort of profound change around year five when action is actually taken and, and money has started to be looked at and models are started to be assembled. And then by that point, you're looking at probably another four to six years in terms of getting the school up and running. So it could be anywhere from 10 to 12 years from the time that conversations have started to the time that a school is actually open. I think that you're going to see in the future that time frame is going to compress because of this need and the demand and the fact that other new schools will have started and you know presented models for folks around the country that they can do things a little quicker. It's interesting to note that it seems like there's a new wave of medical schools in this country every 40 years. There was a big wave in the 1920s. There was another new wave in the 1960s. And now we're approximately 40 years after that, and we're going to probably see the next new wave. And if that trend holds up, you're probably going to see a compression of that time frame, too, so that the next wave of new schools might be around 2020, 2030, instead of waiting for the full 40 years. That's been the pattern in the past. Are we more likely to see private new medical schools or public new medical schools or combination? I think you're going to see a combination. I think you're going to see a lot of new models that haven't been thought about in the past. One of the things we're looking at now is medical schools affiliating instead of with universities, uh, which has been the traditional model in the past. They might start affiliating with some of the larger hospital chains, and the chains would use the new medical schools as a hub for their teaching hospitals to provide physician and labor to their patients. So I think the models are going to change. It's also going to change as you see more outpatient settings even beyond what we have now. And the whole model of clinical education is going to change, I believe, to encompass the real ways that patients are being treated. And you'll also, of course, see a great deal more remote diagnoses and doctoring uh, through technology, particularly to serve those in uh, rural areas and underserved areas. Bruce, it, it turns out that one in five Americans are now in an area that is considered underserved in the healthcare world. And uh, it's not just rural, but it's largely rural. And as those places increase in size, we don't know that just an increase in docs are, are going to result in the fact that those areas will be better served. We do know that if a state, and you ask the question, are these going to be public or private schools? If a state is experiencing a great deal of shortages in counties that are considered rural, it's more likely that that state is going to increase capacity in a public school setting that would allow the locals from those counties to attend medical school and stay in those areas. So right now, if someone comes to the University of Colorado, are they going to go practice in Colorado, particularly in a rural area? Well, the answer to that question is it depends on where they're from. And since so many of the kids that are coming to the University of Colorado Medical School, for example, are from out of state, it's likely that they are going to leave the state and go elsewhere. So exactly how to handle the distribution of docs might be part of the equation you're talking about, whether these are state or private facilities. And do you see in the future states mandating that students to train in their state stay for a certain period of time to take care of that shortage of 
physicians in their state? Not out of the question. We've already seen some mandating of training in rural areas during the student portion of their career. So we know that's going on already. Now, when you say mandate where people live and where they choose to practice, it's a lot harder to do that. But in terms of where they may train, including during their graduate medical education years, their residency years, could in fact be manipulated in a way to get more people to consider locating eventually and practicing in rural areas. I want to thank attorney Doug Laub, who has been our guest discussing the potential shortage of physicians in the U.S. and the prospects for new medical schools. I'm attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, president and chief science officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives better treatments to patients through repurposing generic drugs and other existing therapies for new uses. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.